We begin tonight with Donald Trump. Do we have to? The Donald Trump Jr. of American presidents. Oh, that's cold. That's ice cold. That's one reason. I got the feeling that something right. It is not. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck From in Pacifica the Radio in Los Angeles, this is The Bradcast. As heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., up in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast, 106.7 FM Queso in Cozy Cottage Grove. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on 92.9 FM WLRI News Radio in Maui, Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on the Green Renaissance Network, WGRN 94.1 FM. In Palinville, New York on 102.9 FM WLPP. In Grand Rapids, Michigan on WPRR. In Washington, D.C. on 105.5 FM. And in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF. The progressive voice of Minnesota. We're also heard streaming coast-to-coast and around the globe on the internets every day on the Progressive Voices channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Deprogrammed Radio, Detour Talk, and Radio Sputnik. Blanketing planet Earth five days a week, I'm Brad Friedman, your very friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me... And me too, sometimes. Thank you very much. from <laughs> Sometimes from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us for another thrilling action-packed adventure that we call the Bradcast. That delightful voice you heard snarking in right off the bat was oh, yes. Desi Doyen, our producer. How are you, Desiree? Doing all right. Doing Hope, all right. Hoping you survive the weekend in good order. Coming up, uh, we have been covering over the past year or two now. It's been, uh, boy, at least two years, hasn't it, uh, since the... This Exxon store, Exxon new yes. story broke. Yes, it has. Uh, basically, the fact that researchers have unearthed all sorts of memos and documents proving that the major oil companies like Exxon knew about the dangers of their product to our planet's atmosphere for decades, since at least the 60s. And in truth, going back uh, several decades earlier than that, instead of taking action or letting their investors even know about the risks Posed by global warming uh, after they had already confirmed the science on their own. Instead of that, the big oil and coal companies decided to spend millions and millions of dollars to fund the climate change denial movement that we are still uh, dealing with today. That is today in the White House and in all of our federal agencies all in order to, you know, hoax the public into believing that global warming was itself a big hoax. Well, a number of lawsuits have now been filed against um, the big oil companies for that deception, and we will be following them as, as they move forward in the courts. But now we learn that it wasn't just the oil and coal companies who used this scam to confuse the public. New documents unearthed by Energy and Policy Institute find that the big 
utility companies, the electric utility companies, they also knew about global warming for decades, and they also spent huge resources to lie to the public to make it easier for them to keep burning cheap, dirty coal to improve their bottom line. And a number of those utility companies, by the way, are still lying to the public today about all of this, or at least they're trying to. We will speak with the author of that new report, finding that, yes, like the big oil companies, the utility companies knew long ago as well. Uh, but first, I want to associate myself uh, again uh, this week today with with, uh, with HBO's John Oliver, who... <laughs> who said this on Sunday night. If around 5 p.m. on Friday you suddenly started feeling just a little bit calmer, it may be because this happened. Tonight, President Donald Trump is getting away from the Washington heat. The president arrived in New Jersey just a little while ago to begin a 17-day vacation. Yes, Trump is taking a 17-day vacation from work, which means, more importantly, America may be getting a 17-day vacation from Trump, which is exciting, right? Although, although, hold on, while he's there, he will still have access to the nuclear codes and, even worse, Wi-Fi. So, don't relax, never relax. Your life is still a torture chamber of fear and panic. Yes. <laughs> That sounds familiar. Ouch. That, uh, yeah. Um, in any case, uh, so uh, g glad to see that both Congress and the president are now on vacation. A lot of people are giving uh, Donald Trump much-deserved hell for taking this 17-day vacation, which he claims, oh, it's not a vacation at all. It's a working vacation. It's a working break while they're renovating the White House. Now, the reason, of course, he gets all that crap for taking any vacation and for playing any golf is because he was merciless against the previous president, Barack Obama, uh, for taking about half as many vacations as so far Donald Trump has. But uh, setting that aside, um, <laughs> Trump has, as it turns out, and as uh, John Oliver mentioned there, he still has access to Wi-Fi and much more importantly, he still has access to all of the privileges that go along with being president, including getting the mainstream corporate media to cover his weekly video addresses, no matter how insane they might be, and frankly, no matter how many uh, misleading and blatantly demonstrable lies are included in those weekly addresses. One example from this past weekend's presidential address, and I'm just pulling one. And by the way, it was very strange. Did you see this one, Des? It was uh, very strange. Had all of these kept changing camera angles. Did you... <laughs> yes, I saw that. It was like, wait a second. Why Why do they need so many camera angles? Uh, it was very strange. But, it was very intercut, too. But, uh, again, but don't, uh, don't be distracted by uh, what it looks like, the content. Uh, one example from that, uh, from that address which was just completely misleading. Uh, go ahead. Well, let's let's go ahead and play this uh, this segment. This Donald Trump over the weekend from his uh, weekly presidential address. Just this week, we announced a historic immigration bill to create a merit-based green card system that ends the abuse of our welfare system, stops chain migration, and protects our workers and our economy. As an example, you cannot get welfare for five years when you come into our country. You can't just come in like in past weeks, years, and decades. You come in, immediately start picking up welfare. Nope. For five years, nope. you have to say you will not be asking 
or using our welfare systems. Now, the abuse of our welfare system. Trump has brought this up before, and he came up with what he thought was his idea. Let's stop uh, any immigrants from obtaining welfare for five years after they come to this country. That'll stop people from wanting to come here. Uh, Last week at uh, a news conference, Trump said the Raise Act, this is this new immigration uh, bill that he's putting forward with a couple of Republican senators, the Raise Act prevents new migrants and new immigrants from collecting welfare. They're not going to come in and just immediately go and collect welfare. That doesn't happen under the Raise Act. They can't do that. In Youngstown, Ohio, last week, he said in one of his campaign rallies, we also believe that those seeking to immigrate into our country should be able to support themselves financially and should not be able to use welfare for themselves or the household for a period of at least five years. Well, that sounds like it makes sense. In truth, you know, it uh, seems like a reasonable, if potentially cruel policy. Don't be. Well, that's right. Don't be coming here, though. And and then uh, immediately, you know, sucking off the the big welfare teat. I guess is what he's trying to say. Uh, well, as it turns out, and as we've talked about on this show already uh, in in uh, months earlier, that's already the case. That's already the law. The 1996 Personal Responsibility and Work Opportunity Reconciliation Act, that would have been signed under uh, Bill Clinton, I guess, restricted non-citizens' eligibility for major public assistance programs like uh, Supplementary Security Income, Social Security, SSI, Supplemental Nutrition Assistance, or SNAP, formerly known as Food Stamps, Medicaid, and uh, Temporary Assistance for Needy Families. They are already barred in general. Legal permanent residents, we're talking about people who are coming in here legally. If if you're here uh, undocumented, illegally, uh, you're not welcome to those by any measure. But legal permanent residents who get green cards when they uh, come in, they are already not eligible for those four programs unless they have worked in the U.S. for at least five years. Now, there are some exceptions like uh, asylees, uh, people who come here seeking political asylum from their country or or refugees, people with uh, certain military connections or people who are victims of human trafficking. Now, unless uh, Donald Trump wants to keep out the people who are victims of human trafficking from coming in here and, and, you know, finding safe harbor. This is already essentially the law. Now, some public assistance programs, according to The Washington Post, like Social Security and Medicaid, are based on individual eligibility as opposed to the entire household. Um, But others, like SNAP, which is the food stamps, those provide household-level benefits, meaning if you have a household with two ineligible legal permanent resident parents, say uh, your, your two parents are here on uh, green cards for, an, uh, for employment and they have a baby, they have two babies, for example, who uh, those U.S. born babies are U.S. citizens and they are eligible for food stamps if the uh, household meets the requirements. So... Um, You know, the whole household shares the benefit in that case because there are two kids, toddlers in that uh, scenario who need to eat food. A White House spokesman explained to The Washington Post, under the current system, you get welfare through your household. The new legislation will expand the five year welfare prohibition 
to the households of all immigrants coming in on the points system and not just the immigrant themselves, as is the current law. So this point system they're talking about are these uh, basically the raise act would make it uh, would would essentially cut legal immigration in half over the next decade. And it would be based on uh, a certain point system for these employment based green cards. And uh, in that case, if you come in under that and you don't have enough money to feed your U.S. born children, they and you are all out of luck. In a 2016 report, uh, the libertarian think tank Cato Institute warned against measuring welfare use by household because it does not reveal, they said, who receives the benefits, leaving the impression that the immigrants are the intended legal beneficiaries when they are often excluded from these programs already. The intended beneficiaries are these children. These U.S. citizen children Correct. who would presumably should not be losing their right to that assistance just because of their parents. Because of their parents, who, by the way, are not even here illegally. They're here legally under the green card system. But we still want to deny them any such benefits. Randy Caps at the nonpartisan think tank uh, Migration Policy Institute says that such a policy, if it were enacted, would violate the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution. He says, I don't believe it would stand a legal challenge that a U.S. citizen child with a parent who is a recent legal immigrant gets treated differently under the law than a child who has U.S. born parents. So um, this is just one uh, lie that uh, Trump has been repeating over and over and over again, giving the idea that, oh, you know, all of these immigrants are flooding in because they're getting all of these free benefits the minute they get here. No, almost every single one of them is barred for five years. So he's just misleading the chumps and dupes and suckers who listen to him at his campaign rallies. But he's also using these presidential addresses, even while he's on vacation, to misinform the American public. The um, uh, the uh, Washington Post fact checker gives the claim three Pinocchios. But Only I guess three? that's yeah, I was going to say, well, it's out of a four Pinocchio system. So I guess uh, there's some room there because of the context and uh, the communic uh, the, the confusion about who does and doesn't which, you know, immigrants are or aren't welcome to uh, yeah. to welfare. Right. Uh, a nuance that that president, this president, our president doesn't much give a damn about. Speaking about our president not giving a damn, a blast caused by what the FBI called an improvised explosive device rocked a Bloomington Islamic Center in Minnesota before dawn on Saturday, just as a small group of Muslim worshipers had gathered for the day's first round of prayers, according to the Star Tribune. No one, thankfully, was hurt in the explosion, but it heavily damaged the imam's office at the Dar al-Farouk Center and sent smoke wafting through the large building. Windows in the office were shattered. This was uh, a blast at around 5 a.m. as uh, about a dozen people had gathered in a room nearby for morning prayers, jolted awake, awake many of the uh, uh, residents in the neighborhood. Yeah, you think? Uh, the uh, FBI and the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, Explosive joined the investigation. Witnesses um, are being interviewed. 
and the FBI is asking anyone with information to call 1-800-CALL-FBI. Now, there might be more people who would call in with that information if they had even heard about this blast. Yes, nobody was killed, thankfully. But the fact that this uh, made almost no news at all. I know that our, our listeners in uh, in Minnesota, AM 950, KTNF, they probably, hopefully, heard about it in Minnesota there. But around the country, there was very little coverage of this. Now, you know, I, I, I mean, the DHS and, and all of these federal agencies did come out and, you know, condemn. The, the, the statement from the DHS said they fully support the rights of all to freely and safely worship the faith of their choosing and vigorously condemn such attacks on any religious institution. But you know who did not take the time to condemn that attack? The President of the United States. So you, do you suppose had a, a bomb gone off in a white evangelical church that he might have mentioned it somehow on his Twitter account? Yeah. Uh, and, and then started calling, by the way, for more deportations or something? I mean, it's an unbelievable double standard. When it happens to an Islamic uh, center, who cares? But it's not just Trump doing that double standard. It's also, frankly, the corporate media. They're not covering this as they would had it been, as you suggested, an evangelical white Protestant church or any basically any other white place where white people hang out. Uh, I'd like to to say say, even uh, potentially uh, a black church, maybe. Um, but uh, Islamic, that's right out. Congress, uh, I'm sorry, congregants said the blast appeared to be a hate crime. Mohammed Omar, the center's executive director, uh, who was in the building when the exp- explosion erupted, said one worshiper saw a pickup truck speeding out of the parking lot right after the blast. Omar said, we feel like it's much deeper and scarier than like something random. He said, it's so scary. Assad Zaman, director of the local Muslim American Society, described the attack as a firebombing. Governor, uh, Minnesota's Democratic Governor Mark Dayton joined other public officials and community leaders, calling the bomb wretched and so not Minnesota, calling the bombing an act of terrorism. Trevin Miller, who lives across the street, said it was a very loud noise. You could feel it. I thought maybe somebody drove through our house or something. I felt it on my inside. So this was a big explosion. Yeah. Omar said the center occasionally receives threats uh, or hateful calls and emails. Uh, callers, uh, he, he, he has said, have called and said that we shouldn't be here, that we're a burden to the community or that we're somehow harming it. But this was uh, the first violent incident at the center. AP reports uh, that anti-Muslim incidents in the U.S. are increasing, including arson attacks and vandalism at mosques, harassment of women wearing Muslim head covering, and bullying of Muslim school children. Also in Minnesota, an Islamic cemetery in Castle Rock Township recently reported that it had been vandalized with spray-painted profanities and swastikas. In any event, a reward uh, for information leading to arrest or conviction Uh, has now been issued by the Muslim American Society and the Minnesota chapter of the Council on American-Islamic Relations. It's now grown to $24,000, and national offices of both groups are urging Islamic centers and mosques to step up security. I just wanted to hit that um, because it was getting so little coverage. Yeah, I mean, the way we cover 
any sort of terror-related event in this country, so long as it's terror actually committed by people who are believed to be in some uh, fashion uh, Muslim, that we go wall-to-wall with. But hell, you know, bomb an Islamic center? A bomb actually goes off? Not a plot, but an actual bomb goes off in an Islamic center? Nope, didn't hear about it. It was Saturday. We were on vacation. All right. Um, before we get to my guest here, um, the uh, where am I here? I'm lost. Okay, here we go. Uh, the the staff <laughs> at the sorry staff at the U.S. Department of Agriculture, the USDA, have been told to avoid using the term climate change in their work. With the U.S. with the officials instructed to reference quote weather extremes instead. This according to reporting. Today, from The Guardian in the U.K., a series of emails obtained by The Guardian between staff at the Natural Resources Conservation Service, the NRCS. This is a, uh, a unit at the USDA that oversees farmers' land conservation. Do you think the climate change would be important to farmers? Oh, just a little. And uh, conservation? Would that... Uh, Anyway, uh, the series of emails shows that the incoming Trump administration uh, back in January and February had a stark impact on the language that was used by some federal employees regarding climate change. A missive from Bianca Mobius-Kloon, director of soil health at this administration, lists terms that should be avoided by staff and those that should replace them. So climate change is in the avoid category. That is to be replaced by weather extremes, Desi Doyle. <laughs> just weather extremes, not That's climate all it change. Is, just, just weather uh, extremes. Instead of climate change adaption, adaptation, st- right? Uh, staff are asked to use resilience to weather extremes. That's what it's about. Don't worry about adapting. Just uh, beef up your resilience to these. You know, you never know when bad weather is going to roll through. The primary cause of human-driven climate change is also targeted with the term. Quote, reduce greenhouse gases being blacklisted now in favor of, quote, build soil organic matter, increase nutrient use efficiency. Meanwhile, sequester carbon. That is right out. Don't talk about (laughs) sequestering carbon. Uh, I guess, you know, just don't mention carbon as a concept at all, apparently. Instead, you are uh, to say build soil organic matter. In her staff, uh, in her email to staff, uh, this was dated uh, mid-February of this year, Mobius Clune said the new language was given to her uh, and her staff and suggested it be passed on. I don't believe that Mobius Clune was the woman who was uh, responsible for this change. I believe she was getting this from higher ups. I agree. In a separate email to senior employees in late January, just days after the Trump uh, Trump's inauguration, Jimmy Bramblett Deputy Chief of Programs at the NRCS said, quote, it has become clear one of the previous administration's priority is not consistent with that of the incoming administration. Namely, that priority is climate change. He wrote, he added that, quote, prudence should be used when discussing greenhouse gases and said the agency's work on air quality regarding these gases could be discontinued. So, uh, you know, obviously we have been reporting on them uh, cleansing, purging various websites, the EPA website and so forth. 
Um, and uh, all of them, the Interior Department. Well, now we have actual emails showing that this was that it was not an accident, that no. this is actually a... It's an actual change in the way yep. that policy is communicated to and science is communicated to America's farmers. And this is very, very dangerous. It is dangerous because agriculture is a major source of heat-trapping gases, yes. for one thing. 15% of the country's emissions come from farming practices, but we're not supposed to talk about that, I or, guess, anymore. Or even help farmers understand, hey, if you do this, not only will it improve your soil health and improve your crop yields, it will also improve your emissions profile, and you'll be reducing emissions. But it's it's extra dangerous because if farmers aren't hearing about climate change in general and not hearing about the techniques and conservation techniques that they can use to prevent us from having, oh, I don't know, another dust bowl. They don't hear this stuff. They're not preparing for this adaptation that's going to be required. And we're already seeing impacts of this. Right now in Montana, there is a flash drought. A flash drought is a sudden onset of extreme heat and extreme drought all at once. And there are farmers right now who are starting early harvest of their crops because their crops are failing, because no one helped prepare them for this flash drought. It's only our uh, the nation's food supply that uh, is in question here. Why should we worry about that? And uh, the USDA apparently is not worried about that, at least not the officials who are now heading up the USDA. We reported last week on Sam Clovis. He is Trump's nominee to be the USDA's chief scientist. Uh, a, he's not a scientist. Of any kind. Of any kind. He's a right-wing talk radio host. He has called climate research, quote, junk science. And last week, as if that's not enough to disqualify this uh, knucklehead, it was revealed that uh, Clovis, who once ran, uh, once ran a blog where he called progressives, he's talking about you, Desi Doyen, hmm. uh, he called uh, progressives, quote, race traitors <laughs> and race traitors. And he likened Barack Obama to a communist. Oh, there you go. But that guy is going to head up science science for the USDA. It's just the food supply. So, I, you know, I guess no real surprise that the Trump administration uh, is uh, adopting the climate change censorship that we've seen in recent years in a number of states. Now it's made its way up to the federal level. We, you know, states that are run by fossil fuel friendly climate change deniers like Florida and North and South Carolina and others. We, we had heard them saying, don't say climate change anymore. Don't say sea level rise. Say uh, real estate uh, inconveniences. <laughs> so uh, the solution to that sort of thing, however, is is generally found at the ballot box when you've got uh, climate change deniers in office if you want to do something about it. But what about the private companies that also lie to the American public about climate change? How will they be held accountable? We don't have a ballot box for them. And how long, by the way, have they been misleading the American public in order to boost their bottom line by burning dirty fossil fuel uh, energy sources that are now imperiling humanity itself? We'll find out how long they've been doing it next on the broadcast with new evidence to prove that, yes, the big utility companies, the electric companies in the U.S. knew about climate change long before you did. And they covered it up to make sure that you'd never know. That story is next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away.
Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. But we need your help to do it, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today. That's bradblog.com donate and thanks. Hey, you guys! <laughs> Yes, there you go. Hey, you're welcome. That uh, little uh, blast from the past for those of us old enough to remember the electric company on PBS. I... I think you're old enough, aren't you, Dad? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I uh, love so, that show. You know, someday there will be folks allotting themselves because they're old enough to remember PBS. Oy. But I digress. <laughs> Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. In uh, late 2015, documents unearthed by Inside Climate News, the Columbia School of Journalism, and the L.A. Times revealed that the fossil fuel giant... Exxon had known since the uh, 1970s, at least since the 1970s, we've subsequently learned even decades earlier they knew about the risk to civilization posed by the use of their product, oil in that case, and the unfettered release of carbon dioxide, methane and other greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. Exxon's own scientists confirmed the threat to the world about global warming. Uh, Thanks to the burning of fossil fuels decades ago, but their executives at the company chose to not only cover up those threats, but spend millions of dollars in order to deny that those threats existed at all, or at least to confuse the public, helping to mislead both the public and its shareholders and funding climate change denial organizations with immense amounts of money in the bargain for many years. That apparent affirmative denial of scientific facts and the attempts to mislead the public mirrored the big tobacco company's ruse to similarly mislead and confuse both the public and their shareholders about the dangers of smoking. In fact, many of the same deniers employed by the tobacco industry, as we have since learned, were later employed by the big fossil fuel companies to carry out the exact same ruse. Big Tobacco ended up paying a stiff price, literally billions of dollars, for having misled the public through lawsuits brought against them in the uh, 80s and 90s. And now the fossil fuel industry may be facing similar legal jeopardy. Last month, for example, we reported on the story of a number of major counties and cities in California that have now filed suit against 37 of the world's biggest oil and and uh, coal companies, including ExxonMobil, Chevron, BP, Shell, and others, claiming that the fossil fuel giants should pay for damages wrought by climate change in a first-of-its-kind challenge that some uh, likened to the uh, high-stakes litigation of the tobacco industry in the 1990s. The lawsuits there contend that the oil companies knew about the damage that their actions were causing, denied it, and sought to discredit scientific findings that greenhouse gas emissions were heating the Earth's atmosphere. But now, 
A new report from the Energy and Policy Institute reveals it wasn't only the big oil and coal companies who knew of and subsequently worked to cover up the dangers posed by the burning of fossil fuels. The electric utility companies knew as well, and as the documents reveal, as long ago as 1968. Scientists had begun to warn electric utilities about climate change by 1968, according to the report, and by 1988, the industry's official research and development organization had acknowledged the, quote, growing consensus in the scientific community that the greenhouse effect is real. Despite this early knowledge about climate change, the report details, electric utilities have continued to invest heavily in fossil fuel power generation over the past half a century. And since 1988, some have engaged in ongoing efforts to sow doubts about climate change and block legal limits on carbon dioxide emissions from power plants. One of my favorite examples of this from the uh, Energy and Policy Institute's report is what appears to be a full-page ad from the uh, the Information Council on the Environment, an industry association in cahoots with the utility companies like uh, American Electric Power, Consumer Power Company, uh, EEI, Pacific Gas and Electric, and the Southern Company. Uh, this this huge ad uh, was was placed by these groups um, who had determined at the time to quote, aggressively work to sow doubts about climate science. The ad campaign includes a big illustration of a really silly-looking, sweating chicken running across the street with the headline, Who Told You the Earth Was Warming? Chicken Little? It reads in part, Chicken Little's hysteria about the sky falling was based on a fact that got blown out of proportion. It's the same with global warming, the ad reads. There's no hard evidence it is occurring. Proof that carbon dioxide has been the primary cause is non-existent. If you care about the Earth, but don't want your imagination to run away with you, make sure you get the facts. And then the ad uh, points to the address for informed citizens for the environment to get the real facts about global warming. That was in 1991, actually, many years after the world's leading scientists had uh, long ago begun ringing alarm bells about global warming and the reasons for it. And as we have now learned, after both the oil companies and the utility companies seem to have learned about it via their own scientists, but chose to mislead the public instead. Many of them, even today, continue to do the same thing. Just uh, just this year, in 2017, as the Energy and Policies uh, Institute's Dave Anderson notes in his report, Thomas Fanning, the CEO of Southern Company, continued to deny that CO2 emissions are the primary contributor to climate change. This during an interview with CNBC. At the time, Fanning was also the chair of the Edison Electric Institute, which represents electric companies in all 50 states, and thus he is the sort of the face of the investor-owned electric utility industry. CNBC tweeted out at the time, quote, Like the new EPA chief, Southern Company's CEO doesn't see CO2 as the main reason for climate change. No effort was made by EEI or the Southern Company or other utilities to set the record straight as Anderson notes in his report. Thus, he adds, nearly 50 years after scientists began to warn the electric utility industry about climate change, some utilities continue to stand in the way of real progress 
in addressing the problem. Joining us now to discuss all of this is David Anderson, Dave Anderson, I should say, whose report, in my opinion, has not gotten the attention it deserves uh, amidst all the political noise emanating these days from Washington, D.C. Dave Anderson is the policy and communications manager for the Energy and Policy Institute and the lead researcher and author of this report. Um, the Energy and Policy Institute is a nonpartisan, nonprofit watchdog organization dedicated to exposing attacks on clean energy and countering misinformation from fossil fuel and utility interests. He must be very busy these days. Dave Anderson, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Thank you. It's great to be on. Uh, appreciate uh, appreciate you joining us. Uh, I, I got to note uh, that Chicken Little ad that uh, that caught my eye. Uh, that was uh, from this, uh, I guess, an AstroTurf group calling themselves Information Council on the Environment. Uh, it, as, as an acronym, I noticed, uh, they, it's the word ICE. Is that an accident? Any idea, Dave Anderson? I think it was probably a deliberate effort on their part. Um, and uh, I think it's accurate to say that back then, the electric utilities were very worried about the building public support for action on climate change. Mm -hmm. And what they wanted to do was put the science on ice, you could say, <laughs> to help uh, tamp down on that concern. Yeah. Th now, this is, this is not speculation. This is not uh, guesswork as far as what did the utilities know and when did they know it. This appears to be actual documentation that the utility industry was made aware of these concerns going back now almost 50 years. Walk us through, if you don't mind, some of the actual documentation, some of the actual warnings from scientists to the industry that were, uh, I guess, ignored or at least disputed, and uh, then we can talk about uh, where, where you found them all. Sure, that'd be great. I think uh, a good place to start the 1968 uh, fellow named Dr. Hornig addressed the annual convention of the Edison Electric Institute, which, as you mentioned, is the industry trade group for mm -hmm. all the nation's investor-owned utilities. Um, and he delivered a warning about uh, the possible climate effects of CO2 emissions from burning fossil fuels way back then. Um, and that was actually based on some earlier reports that had been commissioned by President Lyndon Johnson and before him, John F. Kennedy, that also touched upon uh, the possible threat posed by CO2 emissions. So Both. even way back then, government was starting to get involved in climate research, and it seems like utilities were involved in the creation of those reports and probably knew even earlier than 1968 that this could be a problem. Even earlier than 1968. Yeah, I wanted to underline that this was Lyndon Johnson and John F. Kennedy looking into these matters, and in 1968... Uh, acknowledge it. Now, this was uh, a convention of the EEI, the Edison Electric Institute, the trade group for in all 50 states? Yes, exactly, exactly. And that was just a, one of several warnings that they received at that same meeting um, in 1969 and 1971. And while the science on climate change wasn't quite as far along back then as it is today, uh, by 1971, the electric utility industry had put together this massive uh, research and development goals document um, saying what they would focus their R&D dollars on through the year 2000. And one of the many things contained in that was a plan to research the effects of CO2 emissions from power plants on the climate um, over the course of 20 or more years. So even in 1971, they saw this as a really long-term potential issue uh, for power generation. And we saw with uh, Exxon, I had mentioned at the top of my opening there, that... Um 
uh, as they began. Well, there was a big effort by Exxon initially to try to understand the relationship between carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and global warming. And then that effort seems to have sort of abruptly stopped and they turned to funding climate change denial. Do, do, do you see a similar pattern? Was there a similar pattern here with the electric utility companies where they, you know, finally, you know, acknowledged the science and said, "Uh oh, we, we better change course and, and uh, <laughs> confuse the world about it? Yeah, at least to some extent, I think around 1988, uh, before then, the issue has received some public attention, but was largely discussed in pre-academic spheres of industry, government, and academic circles, mm-hmm. um, where it could be carefully managed, of course, by um, industry lobbyists and experts. So once it exploded onto the front pages of the New York Times after some pretty uh, interesting congressional testimony in 1988, it seems like the utilities kind of freaked out. <laughs> they started looking for uh, people who could spread the message that climate science wasn't legit and even a hoax. And uh, I think one of the funnier findings of the report is that they turned to several um, people who'd been earlier promoted by a publication of conspiracy theorist Lyndon LaRouche uh, oh, yeah. as a, <laughs> advocates of the idea that global warming was really just this big hoax by scientists who wanted to make a bunch of money off of government mon- uh, funding. Were they actually were they actually working with Lyndon LaRouche? Uh, that's not quite clear yet. Uh, one of his publications did this big expose and interview that included interviews uh, with some fairly up and coming climate deniers at the time. One of them named Patrick Michaels is still around today, working for the Cato industry and mm-hmm. other special interest groups funded by uh, the Coke Industries and other energy interests. Um, and he just, his name just popped up again and again over the years since around that time um, in connection to industry funding. So he actually worked on that information council for the environment campaign that you talked about with the Chicken Little ads. Mm-hmm. And people would see that ad published. They were encouraged to call or send a letter to a certain address, and they'd receive a letter from him, uh, you know, supposedly explaining why climate science was uh, theory, not fact, as they put it. And so what was this all about for the utility companies? Was this simply so that they didn't have to go away from their cheap uh, source of power from, from coal? Is that what the bottom line, what this was all about? Yeah. I think uh, back in the 70s, what we found, too, was, of course, the energy crisis was well underway. Mm-hmm. And at the time, power plants were burning a lot of oil and natural gas in particular. So there was a real... Uh, rush to find something else to generate power with, and coal was there. One of the more interesting documents that we found was a congressional testimony by an expert from the Electric Power Research Institute, mm-hmm. which is the utility industry's own R&D shop founded around 1972. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he actually warned Congress that if climate change proved to be a major concern, it could actually make uh, the burning of fossil fuels essentially um, unacceptable. So that was a pretty bold statement in 1977. Yeah. And at the same time, the utility industry over quite a few years after that continued to invest heavily in new coal-fired power generation. So they were living with the legacy of those investments, knowing that they had a lifespan of 30 to 40 or 50 years. Um, And of course, the bottom line is always front and center when you're a shareholder-owned company. 
In your uh, in your report, you you sort of connect a whole bunch of these dots from uh, uh, you know various conferences over the years and testimony over the years. Was this a matter of uh, just literally uh, looking through the public record, or did you have uh, you know sort of industry whistleblowers who were working with you on this to uh, to you know give you documents or point you in the in the uh, in the right direction? How did you pull all of these pieces together, Dave Anderson? A lot of this we were actually able to find in public sources that you could say are available, but pretty obscure. Mm-hmm. Um, so we started off just with a handful of copies of the Edison Electric Institute's Bulletin, which was an industry publication that they published for decades. Um, and just uh, working from there and looking at more information on the experts who were um, cited in those articles, we were able to find other mentions and start digging up some of the actual studies that utilities funded and um, pour through the pages of the EPRI journal, which they happen to have posted all of the issues of online. Mm. Um, so I think there's a lot of digging left to do would be one takeaway from this. You know, yeah. we have a handful of internal documents that have been um, exposed over the years that we're able to look into. But uh, for the most part, what they were saying behind the themes about climate change remain unknown. Uh, yeah, because uh, we had actual, you know, e- emails, letters, memos, and so forth from uh, from Exxon Mobil uh, in that report that I mentioned earlier. It seems like there's still a lot to be understood about the utility companies here, and this effort uh, obviously continues to be ongoing, even with all that we know. I mentioned, uh, as you do in your report, that uh, Southern Company uh, uh, guy, what's his Fanning, Thomas Fanning, Uh, And his remarks, he's still out there uh, denying your report also ties groups like ALEC, the uh, the American Legislative Exchange Council and the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, which is the nation's largest lobbying group. Um, They are continuing this work with the uh, utilities industry, it it seems, or at least some of the uh, uh, companies like Southern Company. Um, to, uh, as they describe, oppose EPA efforts to regulate greenhouse gases under the existing Clean Air Act, including the endangerment finding. Uh, what, what does that effort really mean? What, are they, what, what is their goal here that is seemingly being led at this point by Scott Pruitt at the EPA itself? Yeah, and Pruitt, of course, has a lot of ties to uh, various energy industries. I think that emails that have been published um, from public information requests that were sent to his old attorney's general office in Oklahoma reveal quite a few ties to major electric utilities like American Electric Power. Um, It's been sort of interesting because at the same time recently, the electric utility industry developed this big communications playbook that was really pushing the idea that, hey, you know, we're the good guys. We're investing in wind and solar power. Um, You should like us. (laughs) But... Behind the scenes, we're continuing to see these efforts to um, weaken, if not entirely eliminate, the EPA's first-ever limits on carbon dioxide emissions from power plants under the Clean Air Act. And it seems like that's moving forward rather quickly under Scott Pruitt's EPA. Um, Currently, what they're looking into doing is uh, taking renewable energy and energy efficiency off the table as options for utilities to meet um, those standards. So essentially it would be giving industry exactly what they want, the ability to keep all those coal and natural gas plants operating for the foreseeable future. 
And yet, at the same time, we see sort of this uh, this parallel effort, or or uh, you know, an effort that's going on at the same time. In any event, a legal effort. You write that uh, research has shown that electric utilities could face serious financial repercussions if he- ever held liable for the climate change damages incurred by their power plant emissions. Uh, I mentioned that big lawsuit against uh, 37 uh, oil and uh, coal companies that was just filed out here by a number of counties in California. Um, What are the chances of these utility companies, as you see it, uh, if you can handicap it, uh, being added to some of these suits? And actually, have any of these groups yet been included in some of these lawsuits against the fossil fuel companies that we're beginning to see? Well, let me uh, preface this by saying that I'm not myself a lawyer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> However, uh, there was a interesting quote in one of the articles about our report on uh, the Weather Channel from Michael Gerard, who's a climate law expert at Columbia University. Mm-hmm. And what he said was that the information in this report uh, provides evidence of the same people who are investigating fossil fuel companies like ExxonMobil to also look into utilities, especially those that continue to burn a lot of coal, and uh, to some extent, those that rely heavily on natural gas. Um, So that's a pretty blunt assessment from an expert on climate law. I do think it's accurate to say that um, utilities have been the target of climate-related litigation in Mm -hmm. the past. There was a big case called um, Connecticut VAEP that I think made it to the Supreme Court level. Mm-hmm. And that was interesting in that it sent a kind of a loophole that exists today for utilities because the court said, well, the EPA has decided to move forward with limits on carbon dioxide for power plants. So we're going to give them a chance to do that and not allow states like New York and Massachusetts that are on the front lines of sea level rise um, to use lawsuits to force these utilities to clean up their act. So to the extent that utilities are able to weaken or get rid of uh, those EPA limits on CO2 emissions, They've landed themselves a pretty nice loophole where, you know, they're free at least from that type of litigation, but uh, also able to continue emitting a ton of CO2 into the air. Yeah, they seem to be uh, literally uh, playing with fire, uh, legal fire and actual fire. Uh, Dave Anderson, before I let you go here, Energy and Policy Institute deals with with specifically with policy. How how uh, how how do we encourage the utility industry to get on board with climate action policies? Do you see? Uh, some of them are clearly doing that. Guys like, uh, you know, uh, Tom Fanning at Southern Company don't seem to be. But uh, is there anything that we, the public, can do to uh, is start encouraging the utility industry to go in the right direction and reject people like uh, Fanning and the other denialists out there? Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, at the local and state level, well, D.C. may largely be in dysfunction on climate issues these days. There's a lot of opportunities to continue to advance policies that require utilities to use more renewable energy and energy efficiency and limit their emissions. Um, I will say that one thing that really makes the utilities case different than ExxonMobil Mm -hmm. is that they've been allowed um, by public utility commissions around the country and uh, even federal regulators to collect a portion of their payments to groups like the Edison Electric Institute from their customers. So I think to the extent that customers are angered by uh, the information found in this report, they should definitely be reaching out to utilities that are members of groups like the Edison Electric Institute or the American Legislative Exchange Council and say, 
you know, you can't spend our money on this uh, climate denial and lobbying against uh, climate protections that we don't believe in. And uh, I think that's another issue that lawyers are starting to look into to see if there could be some sort of refund possibility there. Yeah, or at least if they uh, do that sort of lobbying, uh, uh, let them know that uh, you intend to vote against their uh, the candidates with whom they work. Uh, I would uh, encourage people to check out the report at um, energyandpolicy.org. It's called Utilities New, Documenting Electric Utilities, Early Knowledge and Ongoing Deception on Climate Change from 1968 to 2017. That's at energyandpolicy.org. You can also uh, follow them on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Energy and Policy. And I believe this is uh, Dave Anderson. I think this is your personal uh, Twitter, Clean Tech Facts. Is that you? That's correct. All right. We will follow you there. Dave Anderson, really appreciate your time today and most especially appreciate your report. Thanks so much for that. And uh, please stay in touch. Thanks for having me on. You bet. Okay, a quick break, and we're back with, oh, it looks like Fox News is in trouble again. Uh-oh. Oh, Fox News. All right, we. Uh, I think that must be why they have so many viewers, people just watching for things to explode and uh, like disasters. Like a train wreck? Yes. <laughs> All right, quick break, and we'll, we'll be back with that story and more if we have time. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. <laughs> Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence. Why? Because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. Seems to have a lot of dirty little secrets. Oh, who would that be? Fox News. Oh, yeah. Fox News. They ne- They just never ever stop. And you know what? You know who? By the way, who won't be reporting on what we just talked about with Dave Anderson and the fact that the utility companies have known for decades about climate change? Also, Fox News. <laughs> I'm I'm inclined to say all of the mainstream corporate media won't be reporting it because all of them don't give climate change the the do that it, it deserves um but certainly not fox news uh in the meantime fox news continues to uh <laughs> you think this is a pattern for fox um fox news host eric bowling has been suspended while the network conducts an inve- in an investigation into whether he sent photos of male genitalia to female colleagues Fox News person announced, spokesperson announced over the weekend. That's a nice way of, well, I won't say it, but they came up with a nice way of describing what he did and what Anthony Weiner also did and who was mercilessly criticized for uh, over on Fox News. Unsolicited, by the way. Except, by the way, the the photos that Eric Bowling sent. Yes, unsolicited. And by the way, it turns out that Bowling, people have been going through the past couple of days how he dealt with uh, Anthony Weiner and those pics that uh, he sent. And uh, Bowling was was sort of... um, 
sympathetic with him, said, you know, come on to Fox News. I'll make sure you get a fair hearing on this issue. Well, maybe because uh, Eric Bowling had his own unsolicited picks. Actually, I don't know that uh, Wiener's picks were unsolicited. I but think that Eric, he, but Bowling's Eric Bowling's definitely were unsolicited. No one asked for them. Allegedly. You're right. I'm sorry. Allegedly. The spokesperson for Fox said that Bowling has been suspended pending the results of the investigation, which is currently underway. Bowling is uh, just the latest Fox News personality to be accused of sexual harassment. On Monday, he took to Twitter after the suspension, uh, tweeting that, quote, he was overwhelmed by all the support that he had received from fans and that he, quote, looks forward to clearing my name ASAP. Fox announced on Saturday that they were suspending Bowling, who uh, currently hosts, he's the co-host of Cashin' In and a new show, The Fox News Specialists, where he has just been uh, set as one of the co-hosts there. The Huffington Post reported on Friday, late Friday, that Bowling had sent photos of male genitalia to three female colleagues. Those colleagues have not been identified. HuffPo reported that the three women had received unsolicited lewd photos via text message from Bowling. The latest episode of Cashin' In was taped on Friday morning, but the uh, but Fox News pulled it. They wouldn't even air that one uh, once the station was made aware of the allegations, according to a Fox spokesperson. At least a dozen, dozen sources linked to Fox News and Fox Business spoke with Huffington Post on the condition of anonymity. And the recipients of the alleged photos confirmed the contents of of the text messages, which they said they found upsetting and offensive. Oh, you think? And if I remember correctly, Eric Bowling says he doesn't remember. Yes, it, well, his attorney says uh, that he has no recollection of sending any such uh, photos. Mm-hmm. He didn't say he never did it, I never did it, I would never do such a thing. He said he has no recollection of that. Yeah. So the probe is now being conducted by the same company, the same law firm, Paul Weiss, that had looked into allegations of sexual harassment against former Fox chair Roger Ailes, uh, former host Bill O'Reilly, and uh, all of the people who seem to uh, help them do that for so many years there. So, yes, it seems to be uh, some kind of a problem within the culture of Fox News. Yeah, you think? Bowling has been with Fox since 2007. Boy, things are changing there quickly. All right, got to get out. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, and to my guest today, Dave Anderson of Energy and Policy Institute, and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show, download it for free anytime at bradblog.com. While there, please consider stopping by bradblog.com donate to help us continue to do what we do here. We ain't got that big fossil fuel money like Fox News does. Uh, You can drop me an email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Bradblog. That's it. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.